on December 27, 2004, for a tenth of a second, a blast of energy hit the earth that knocked satellites offline, disrupted submarine and radio transmissions, and slightly shifted the earth's magnetic field. Didn't take long for human instruments to reboot and come back online, but astrophysics right across the world were kind of left wondering, what was that? It turned out that something like 50,000 light years away, there was a massive star quake that had occurred on a neutron star. Uh, for those who don't know, a star quake is, just picture an earthquake here on Earth, uh, but on a much, much grander scale. Uh, I believe this is one of, if not the most powerful one ever detected. Uh, one that, in only a tenth of a second, it emitted more energy than our sun does in 150,000 years. I can't get my head around that, but it's a big number. As it slowly dawned on scientists, the sheer magnitude and scale of what had occurred, uh, it, would have, it would have been hard not to respond with a sense of awe and wonder as they contemplated the beauty and the glory that exists in the universe. Wow. Now, if you're not scientifically minded and perhaps a little geeky, what I just said probably just went over your head. Uh, if that's you, that's okay. Uh, maybe instead you can think of another time you've had a bit of a wow moment. Uh, maybe even just thinking about the natural world. Uh, for me, I, many years ago, or a few years ago, I visited New Zealand and uh, I really was, uh, stood in awe of some of the natural beauty there. I, I visited Milford Sound um, and that was uh, quite an experience. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, think of a time perhaps of when you've perceived the beauty of God's created world and, and responded like that. Now, as epic as this star quake was, 2,000 years ago, another earthquake had occurred that was much, much more significant. Significant not because of the magnitude, but significant because of what it signified and pointed to, namely the death of Jesus, an event that itself ought to and does evoke a sense of awe and wonder for onlookers when they properly understand its full meaning. For the Christian, the death of Christ, along with his resurrection, certainly does form the very heart of the gospel message, God's message to the world. One that is designed to evoke awe and wonder in the hearts of God's people. For it to do this, to give us a sense of awe and wonder, there are two things in our passage that can help us do just that. Two things that revolve around the two cries that Christ cried out on the cross. And so this morning, I just want to focus on, from our text, the two cries of Christ. What they mean for believers and how they ought to lead us and help us uh, lead us in worship of our great God and standing in wonder of what Christ has done for us. And so the first cry that we encounter today in our text is the cry of Christ's suffering. The cry of Christ's suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry that proclaims the suffering Christ endured in the place of sinners. What is the nature of this suffering? 
Well, first, it was experiencing suffering at the hands of men. Our passage appears mid-scene, a bit like fast-forwarding an hour and a half into a movie and then pressing play. Up until this point in Matthew's Gospel, so much has kind of happened already. Uh, In chapters 26 and 27 as a whole, they detail the final events of Jesus' life as he headed to the cross. And all along, we see Jesus being rejected more and more by those around him. It begins with Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 close disciples, who accepts a bribe from the chief priest to betray Jesus. Shortly after, another disciple, Peter, and along actually with all the disciples, uh, they first pledged themselves to never abandon abandon Jesus. But then soon after, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, it's recorded there that uh, in Matthew 26, in the next slide, then all the disciples left him and fled. But it wasn't going to stop there. Then next came Jesus' unjust criminal sentencing at the hand of the Jewish leaders and Pilate, the Roman governor where instead of releasing the innocent Jesus, the criminal Barabbas is released instead, leaving Jesus condemned to face death by crucifixion. Mocked, beaten, and despised by all, Jesus is then nailed to the cross, where he receives no comfort from man, but repeatedly only experienced rejection by all around him. What was prophesied in Psalm 69 verse 20 became true for him. For it says, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Likewise, the same is true uh, from Psalm 22. This, the same psalm that Jesus quotes uh, when he says, My God, my God, why have forsaken me? There he's quoting verse 1. Of Psalm 22. Further on in that psalm, in verse 6 and 7, it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Likewise, in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that we read earlier, it says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In life, all of us will experience to some degree what it's like to be rejected by others, whether small or great. Maybe you've received a cold shoulder from someone. Words that cut deep to the bone maybe even rejected and looked down upon because of your Christian beliefs. Jesus, as our perfect high priest, who is made perfect through suffering, can sympathize and relate to us on a very personal and intimate level in this regard. His physical suffering and rejection by man was also part of his wholesome payment for sins having paid the wholesome price for sin, which included physical suffering. As Calvin once said, when 
Our Lord Jesus Christ is judged before an earthly judge. It was in order that he might be exempt and absolved from the condemnation that we deserve before a heavenly judge. But it was not only the suffering at the hands of men that Jesus experienced on the cross. Secondly, he also experienced suffering at the hands of God. A fact first symbolized by the supernatural darkness that overshadowed the land at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Many have wondered whether this darkness could have been explained by natural causes, maybe a dark cloud cover or perhaps an eclipse. But similar to the supernatural darkness that overshadowed Egypt in the ninth plague against Egypt in the time of the Exodus, the best explanation of this is also one of supernatural origins. Furthermore, this darkness carried the same meaning as that ninth plague against Egypt, whereby symbolizing God's judgment against Egypt, being a darkness that occurred just before the tenth and final plague, where the angel of the Lord came and struck down all the firstborn male children in Egypt. Likewise, here at the cross of Christ, God's judgment was occurring. But unlike that time in Egypt, this time God was striking down his own firstborn, only begotten child, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God then, with a mighty outstretched arm, mighty to save, poured out his wrath upon Jesus in order to save sinners. With Jesus upon the cross, receiving upon him the just penalty against sin. In this way, Jesus became, became the Lamb of God, Scripture tells us, who took the place of sinners. Like the Passover sacrificial lambs that Israel sacrificed back in that time of the Exodus, whereby saving all the firstborn sons of Israel. Jesus at the cross became the true Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world by his single sacrifice, atoning for the sins of many. But did this mean that God was at the cross angry with his son? No, for this was planned from eternity past. God the Father and God the Son in perfect love toward one another planned to save sinners in this way, whereby displaying and declaring his love to the world. Uh, as Reformed Pastor Joel Beeking says, God was pleased with his son upon the cross. God did not reject his son, but poured out upon him the rejection that we deserve. In Christ's crucifixion, we see the pinnacle of Christ's obedience in both his active and passive glory. And that is our salvation. Furthermore, is this cry of Christ one of utter despair? Of someone who had completely given up hope in God? Was Jesus here failing to take his own advice that he'd given to his disciples back in Matthew 5? where he says in Matthew 5 that in the face of persecution and opposition, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad. I mean, was Jesus failing to take his own advice? No. 
Jesus' first cry here was an urgent plea for help as he marvelously maintained trust in God with the words, My God, my God. Yes, he was crying out in pain. This was very real and unbearable suffering. But he did so from the place of trust. As God was both handing Jesus over to death and at the same time sustaining him throughout it to face what he did. That's the glory and the marvel of the cross. That's what brings believers, uh, believing hearts joy and awe. To see our suffering Savior persist for you and for me. The crowds show their ignorance and unbelief at this stage, seeking to mock Jesus and tempt him to try and find help elsewhere outside of God. Wait and see whether Elijah will come and save him, they say. The reference to Elijah, perhaps uh, related to the prophecy in Malachi 4, uh, where the crowd believed Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, might appear. Being a man who, according to the narratives in 2 Kings, uh, Elijah never, he didn't really face an ordinary death. Instead, he went up to heaven in a whirlwind on chariots of fire. But the irony is, the exact opposite was occurring at this moment. For on the cross, it was Jesus who was saving Elijah, with Elijah being a sinner just like you and me. On the outside, the cross and the suffering that Christ endured doesn't actually appear all that glorious. In, in a human sense, it is weak, foolish, despicable and kind of ugly. Yet when correctly understood with eyes of faith, it's marvelous because of what it brings to the Christian. Can you see? Are your eyes open this day? To the glory of the Son of God who paid for your sins on the cross of Calvary. And so that's the first cry that we see in our text this morning. His cry of suffering as he endured suffering and maintained trust in God. One that explained the suffering Jesus experienced on the behalf of sinners, suffering from both man and God. This brings us to the second cry that Jesus cried on the cross, one that I'll label as Christ's cry of victory. Christ's cry of victory the moment he died. One that also brings awe and wonder to the believing heart when correctly understood. We read of this in verse 50. Uh, this cry says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Why should this cry cause us to respond in awe and wonder? Why do I call it Christ's cry of victory rather than a cry of defeat? I mean, doesn't it look like defeat? He, he died, didn't he? Well, because our text highlights that this actually is one of victory because of the benefits and salvation that it brings to God's people. And there are three benefits that our passage highlights for us. The first that I've already begun to touch on in how it deals with our sins and opens up 
the way to be forgiven of our sins. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. At his death, that became a reality. Christ gave his life as a ransom, paying the penalty of sins that we might be forgiven. In our Western world, uh, I would argue that we have a very distorted view of love, where we define love uh, on our own terms and mainly based on feelings. Rather than being defined and guided by God's definition of love and how his moral law helps shape us, shape what love looks like. One consequence of this distortion is that when it comes to faith and any notion of God, humanity assumes that approaching God can be a bit of a casual endeavor. If there even is a God, many proclaim that this God is a God of love, whereby failing to accept Uh, God as he's revealed with all his attributes in Scripture, including his holiness and justice. Under such thinking, many propose that you can just come as you are to God. It's almost as if in our heart of hearts, our Western world spend more time demanding that God accept us for who we are rather than us being willing to accept God for who he is. Being a God who rightly, in holy love, requires nothing less than our perfect obedience to him. And who rightly holds sinners accountable for sin and rebellion. A part of recognizing the sheer enormity of God's offer of forgiveness means becoming to terms with how unworthy we are in our, of ourselves to approach God in our sin. And it's also recognizing the sheer length that Jesus went to to gain, uh, to, to gain forgiveness of sins for us, to offer that to us. And yes, out of love, doing that for us. Uh, In July 2021, a heart-touching story emerged of a Chinese man, Guo Gangtong. I probably said that wrong, his name. This man, he was finally united with his son after spending 24 years being separated from him. At the age of two, this man's son had been stolen by human traffickers in front of their home in Shandong. Guo, the father's son, then began a 24-year search to find his son. In that time, Guo travelled over 500,000 kilometres on 10 different motorbikes right across China. Throughout his journey, Guo was injured, he was robbed, uh, he spent his whole family's savings. Uh, at times, he had to beg for change to buy spare petrol uh, petrol for his bike. He carried photos of his son and chased down tips until he finally found his son. It's a touching story of someone going to all lengths 
out of love for someone else. Likewise, at the cross, God has chased you and me down, who embarked on the ultimate journey for us, bridging the infinite chasm between a holy God and a sinful sinner. A journey that was not completed by finding his own son, but through giving his own son. The second benefit that our passage shows us, that Christ's second cry here gives us, is the restoring of God's presence into our lives. Matthew records an extremely well-timed earthquake at the time of Christ's death and resurrection. An earthquake that tore the temple of the curtain, uh, uh, yeah, the curtain of the temple from top to bottom. This curtain likely refers to the curtain at the entrance to that of the Holy of Holies, the innermost room of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant resided. The tearing of this temple curtain symbolized that in Jesus, believers now have access to God's presence. Sin that, was, uh, sin that eternally separated humanity from God has now been dealt with. It also symbolized the end of the Old Testament sacrificial system. No more did the blood of animals need to be shed. For the true sacrifice to which that sacrificial system pointed to had now been complete with Jesus' one sacrifice being effective for salvation. And so, Christian, this morning, I ask you this day, do you know that in Christ, you are now accepted by God? This is God's free gift of grace to his people, where in the gospel, God gives, him, gives us the gift of himself, his life that quenches our thirsty souls, Quenching a spiritual thirst that only his presence can satisfy. The third benefit that our text highlights is the hope of a resurrected life. We see this in the somewhat mysterious opening of the tombs where the resurrected believers come back to life. Uh, the Greek grammar of verses 52 and 53 is a little bit confusing. But it appears that Matthew is not following a strict chronological order here. He records these uh, risen saints as if it occurred before Christ's resurrection, but then he adds a note towards the end showing it came after Christ's resurrection. This is probably to highlight the climactic response of the centurion in verse 54. And also lines up with Colossians 1 18, where Jesus is called there the firstborn from the dead of all humanity, the first to experience new resurrected life. So what are we to make then of these resurrected saints? I mean, the text simply doesn't answer many questions that might pop into your mind. How long did they stick around in Jerusalem? What happened to them afterwards? Did they ascend to heaven with Jesus or go back to their tombs? We don't answer, uh, Matthew isn't concerned with any of those things. And we don't need to know. For what he is trying to teach us is abundantly clear. These resurrected saints are a little taste of what is to come for all believers. Like seeing 
online photos of a new product that you've purchased online and you can't wait for it to actually arrive in the mail. It's the hope of, uh, that we have as Christians of a resurrected life beyond this life. One that is going to be much more glorious than this life that is still tainted by the effects of sin. Something that we're going to consider more this coming Sunday as we consider Christ's resurrection. In this way, when we experience new life in Jesus, new spiritual life, uh, the gospel promises uh, some now and lots more later. All this ought to bring awe and wonder to the human soul. But the message of the gospel is that it can only do so if we respond to it in faith. And so the question for us all today is, have we done this? Do we and have you responded in faith to this, what Jesus has done? Is your response to the death of Christ the same as the Roman centurion? Where it says there in verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The message of the gospel is not about trying to be good enough ourselves for God. We're not trying to be self-saviors. Unlike other world religions, the, the gospel is not about doing X, Y, and Z first so that you might gain some sort of spiritual enlightenment. Rather, the message of the gospel is all about what Jesus has already done and whether you and I believe uh, that his death brings us life. So I ask, does your heart sing for joy for your Savior who died for you? Or does its significance go over your head? Doesn't hit home to your heart like some starquake that you don't understand? I pray that it won't just go over your hearts and not hit home, and that you will see the glory of Jesus and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you today as we especially remember uh, yeah, the death of Jesus, what you've done for us on the cross. We want to thank you afresh this day for going to the nth degree, pulling out all stops to save sinners. Father, we thank you that as we look at your cross, we can see that you meet us in Jesus and what he's done. That in what he's done for us, you restore your holy presence into our lives. That you offer us the forgiveness of sins, a fresh new beginning. Father, we thank you that this is a hope that when properly understood can pervade the whole of our lives and how no matter what we can experience in this life you promise to always be with us and father that we can enjoy the greatest joy of being able to worship you as our great god a joy that is promised and is beyond any joy that we might experience in earthly things Father, I pray that uh, we would know deeply this day what you've done for us and that we would respond in awe and wonder 
that you'd help our hearts understand the sheer enormity of it. Father, I pray especially for anyone here amongst us who is not yet a believer. Holy Spirit, would you open their hearts to the truth of the gospel and the life that you offer through your Son. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.